In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but at some point we lost the plot. And by we, I mean the larger church. At some point, we lost the ability to discern between mythological writing and historical writing. We started to ask the question, is this story true? Rather than perhaps a more in question, does this story or do these stories offer us truth? You see, there is a great distinction between these two questions. Is this story true or does it offer us truth? Truth. They are not necessarily mutually exclusive, and yet one can be true without the other. A good case study of this is found in the first 11 chapters or so of the book of Genesis. And I realize that everyone here has these memorized, but just in case you don't, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. The book of Genesis opens up and God creates the heavens and the earth. And in this new place, God chooses to place humanity, calls them into being and places them in a garden that is a paradise. And in this paradise, there is basically no restriction except one thing. And so quickly, the people choose to violate this one restriction, to disobey God, and the consequences, the consequences are great. The people are cast out of this paradise, and they are forced to live east of Eden. And then we turn the page, and in the very next chapter, the new generation commits the very first murder. Things are escalating quickly. God surveys the world and sees that the world is filled with evil and wickedness, and God says, I'll just reboot the whole thing. I'll send a flood, and I'll save only one family, and I'll have this family build a boat, and this boat will contain two of every kind of species of animal, and we'll just restart this whole thing with people, with people who I have a covenant with. And so this family on their boat survive this great flood. And when they arrive on the other side of this catastrophic event, they make a covenant with God. That God will never destroy the earth in this way again. And then we turn the page one more time. And humanity is once again filled with evil and wickedness. And in Genesis chapter 10, we are introduced to a man whose name is Nimrod. And I have to tell you, as a child, I just thought that was the funniest thing in the entire Bible, that somebody would be named Nimrod. This man was a great warrior and a great leader, and he built many cities. And Genesis 10 tells us that the very first couple of cities he built in Shinar, and one of those cities was called Babel. We turn the page again, and we read the story of the city of Babel. The people there were unified around one task. They spoke the same language. They had built a city, and they had fortified it, and they believed that they were safe. And in this task, they decided that they would build a great tower in the midst 
of the city. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people build towers. We talked about this this morning in our formation class. People build walls around their city because they believe that this will keep them safe. And even if these walls can be penetrated, they believe that some people will choose not to attack them because of their great resources. In other words, it sends a signal to the people who might attack them. But when you've built a wall and you've built it so tall, there is only one other way. There's only one other way to really demonstrate your military power, your resources, your wealth. And that is to build a gigantic tower in the midst of your city that people can see even beyond the walls of the city of Babel. These people had a new technology too. Before this, towers and structures Fences and gates were built with stone, but now they had bricks, and this ability to make their own bricks basically gave them infinite resources, and these bricks were flat on top and could be stacked up so high, and this mortar would keep these bricks together and cause the structure to be strong. And suddenly it seemed as though there was nothing they could not do. In fact, the story has the Lord coming down into the midst of the city. And this is what the Lord says. Nothing will be impossible for these people. And so the Lord chooses to disrupt the people. To confuse their languages and to scatter them across the face of the earth. And you and I as modern postmodern readers are left with this challenge. Is this story myth or is it history? Is it true or does it contain truth? These are important questions. I'll tell you, I believe that this story is myth. It, it may have also happened. But there are many cultures who have a similar story. Just this week, I found 13 different variations of this story of people trying to build a tower into heaven and God or the gods thwarting these efforts. This was a common theme in ancient writing, a moral story, a warning about what it meant to try to fly too close to the sun. But there's also some other telltale signs of why we should understand this story as myth. Nimrod, the man who leads the building of the city, his name translates from Hebrew to English as Nimrod, but its meaning is rebel. The very name of the central character of the story illuminates for us what his motive would have been. This is kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, right? Where the names literally tell us who the people are. Not only this, the story is written with a three-tiered universe in mind. Heaven, the earth below, and some sort of netherworld beneath. And not only the people are operating in this three-tiered universe, but also the Lord is. And friends, you and I know, we've sent men to space, (laughs) We can't get up high enough. There is no tower that we can build into heaven and actually thwart God. And so we know that this story is not written in such a way that we should understand it as historical fact, but it is written in a way that is supposed to illuminate something for us, which makes the story even that much more powerful because, my friends, this is not a story about ancient times, but this is a story about right now. Have you ever 
Have you ever thought about that in our current context, it seems like everyone's talking all the time, but none of us can really understand what anyone else is saying? We've got our select few. We can hear them. They can hear us. But everything else begins to sound like Babel. This story begins to tell us why there might be difference between us as humans, why there is miscommunication that leads to conflict and confusion. This story speaks just as much to our current context as it does about any generation past and gives us the comfort to know that people some thousands of years ago were asking these same questions that we are asking today. So often we feel frustrated and we go, if only times were like they were a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, or six thousand years ago, somehow then we would get along, we would understand each other. And the scriptures tell us, nope. So then what are we supposed to do with this text? And why are we reading it on Pentecost? It feels like the exact opposite of the thing that we are celebrating on Pentecost. Pentecost gives us a story of a group of people gathered together, waiting to know what was next, and the Spirit of God comes in their midst and gives them the ability not only to speak in other languages, but everyone outside to hear them in their own native tongue. This is, this is the solution to miscommunication. This is the solution to not being able to hear one another. So why in the world are we reading a story about the exact opposite? Perhaps it is because Pentecost is the great reversal of the city of Babel. And I have to ask myself, what is different between these two stories? We have groups of people unified around a singular purpose— and yet God chooses to disrupt the language of one group and instead chooses to bring together, to solidify the other group. And it seems to me the difference is the presence of the Spirit of God. I've been through Bible school, divinity school, and seminary, and at this point I can tell you I still haven't really heard a very satisfactory explanation of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I grew up in a community that taught us that we would have these outward manifestations, these physical acts and gifts, and that this would demonstrate to us who was filled with the Spirit, if only they could speak in tongues or prophesy or whatever else. And yet, even as a child, I would leave that church watching people demonstrate those gifts and then watch the way they acted in the world, and I would think, nope. Why is it that you are only filled when we are together as people, and yet when you are out in the world, things go back to normal? So then what does it mean for us to be filled with the Spirit? A little over ten years ago, I was in Bruton, Alabama. My family was living there at the time. I had a checking account at Regions Bank. <laughs> There's not one anywhere close by. And I needed to either open a new account or get a new card, but it was something, whatever I was dealing with, I could not do at the teller's window. And so I was waiting in the lobby to speak to a banker. And I was waiting for a very long time. And I don't think I had a smartphone. And so the wait seemed even longer. 
And finally, a banker from the back came out and said, Mr. Woods, it's so good to see you. What can we help you with today? And as I stood up and I began to speak, I heard a voice from across the bank start yelling, Mr. Woods! Mr. Woods! And this person started running across the bank. And I didn't live in Bruton. The only people I knew in Bruton was my family. And I turned around and I confirmed my suspicions. I did not know this woman, and yet she was running towards me and calling my name. The funny thing was, when I turned around and she saw my face, she also came to the same realization. She did not know me either. And yet the situation was made more awkward in that she was calling me by name as she ran across the bank. As she got to me, she said, Josh, or she didn't say Josh, she said, Mr. She didn't know my name. She said, Sir, I apologize, but you remind me so much of someone that I know. You look just like him. And I said, What is his name? And she said, Larry Woods. And I said, That's really funny. That's my dad. And she said, Oh my goodness, you look just like him. You sound just like him. Your mannerisms are just like him. When you came into the bank, it was as if he was here too. And then in her best Alabama vernacular, she said, boy, you got your daddy all over you. (laughs) To this date, this is still the best theological explanation that I can come up with for what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When we are in a room, when we are existing in the world, our words, our actions, our ways of being, our mannerisms, the ways that we speak should be as though God is present here in this place with other people. It's not about physical manifestations or gifts. It's not about hierarchies of things that I can do that others cannot do, but it's about a way of being in the world. And the world should look at us and go, y'all got God all over you. Because that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the essence of who a person is. And to be a demonstration, a physical representation of them, even when they are not visibly there. So let's go back to my original question. What was the difference between Babel and the day of Pentecost? Most of the ingredients were the same, save the Spirit of God. Except without the Spirit, the people of the earth chased their own desires. They used their time and energy and resources to build a place that made them feel safe, that made them feel comfortable. They tried to create an empire that would ward off anyone trying to come in and join them. And with this empire, they would collect resources and wealth, and they would build up military might, and no one would be able to come against them because that's what human desire leads us to. And yet, the Spirit of God truly filling us, frees us of those desires. And instead, the people on the day of Pentecost, instead of building empire, were called to build the kingdom of God. Pentecost for us is the hope and invitation to a better world. A world where we can speak and be understood and where we can listen to others who are speaking and actually understand them. The day of Pentecost invites us into a new reality. 
where all are welcome and where there is enough for all. And if you want the day of Pentecost to come over and over and over again, you've got to have that missing ingredient. You've got to have the Spirit of God, which means you've got to spend time with God and become like God and live like God in the world so that your presence in the world daily makes it a better place and a little bit more like the kingdom of God. Amen.